Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Monday morning, packed week. Let's see if I can do the bio today. Today's uh, podcast being sponsored by the Rechthans, by Stolmeni Rechthan, in memory of his father. The yards are coming up. 27 outdoor later this week, uh, packed week. Uh, and I think I spoke about him before. This is a real Holocaust survivor was in Auschwitz. Um, she went from Kuznets, ah, from the belly button of Poland. These are Jews who really went through the war bad. Right? Lost his family in the war. Came to this country. Raised the kids. Oh, yeah, I know that group. Right? <laughs> As he says, was a pre- I'm just telling you what she wrote me. He says he lived, he'd been widowed seven years when we used to eat together on Friday nights after we were first married, after he widowed for seven years. And he lived with us till the passing. Oh, that's nice. I was the number one babysitter. I know that type. <laughs> if a per- person survived a war like that, nothing counts as more as the children and the grandchildren. Right? The children never dressed warmly enough. Very nice. Very nice. These are the people who suffered a lot, but at least saw some pay Right? At least they put a life together afterwards. Although I'm the last person to make light of this. Okay? You lose so many family, and this is terrible. What they had to endure. So, then they ended up in the show where I'm at now. Oh, yeah, yeah. But his son became a doctor, and grandchildren have been Hashem, they're from kids. Everything worked out. Even that's a very smug American thing to say. But um, pay tribute to the memory and thank the family. I was uh, this week. I wasn't sure who to do. You never am. And I opened a real film safer I have from uh, Deborah Cena Rub, I think it is. Or something. Yard size that he has. Ooh, it's very, it's like Sotmer. And to my surprise, among the names that he had in there was Leona Mudden. I said, son of a gun. I'm surprised he even put it in there. So that's what I want to talk about today. The famous Rabbi Yehuda Arya Mudina. Or as you, this is Italy in the 1500s. You guys will say Modena, right? Modena is a town, a duchy, actually, in northern Italy, not that far from Venice or the Republic of Venice. But um, the person we're talking about today is is a Venice Jew. In fact, he may possibly be the quintessential Venetian rabbi. Um, I've spoken about Venice many times in the past. Sooner or later, we're going to get around to him. The historians like him because he wrote an article. He's very popular among the secular historians because, first of all, he wrote an autobiography, which nobody else did. So if you're a historian, even if you're not a Talmud Chacham, you're not a learner, you can read the biography. Uh, that's number one. Number two, he wrote a book against Kabbalah. So he loved that stuff. Um, but he's a lot more than that. Although, I find him very interesting at different levels. Is what I would call, not the A+, plus, but the A-minus, B-plus rabbi. 
I can only give you my evaluation. So let's see what we're talking about. We're talking about somebody that was a rabbi, if not, sort of, uh, in, from 1571 to 1648. I remember the years. So it's late 1500s, early 1600s in Italy, late 16th century, early 17th century. It's not the Renaissance anymore. There's so much baloney written about this guy. But historians who ought to know better, it surprises me all the time. But many historians don't do well with complex figures. What can I tell you? I like to paint people black or white or, or, or purple or orange. What if you have somebody who's a little of everything? Our hero was a Jew from Venice. His family was from elsewhere. It actually comes from... He wrote an autobiography, among other things. He wrote a lot of books. But there's a reason. And they're all very good, but none of them hit, you know, uh, what should I say, um, star status. So it's not clear what to do with somebody like this. We're dealing with somebody who's an Italian Jew. His family came originally from France. So they're, they're kind of Ashkenaz in a certain way, like the Maharik was. A certain type of Ashkenaz. Not the Yekish exactly, not. It's French Ashkenaz, left over from Rashi's time, that sort of thing. Um... Northern Italy, by the time he grows up, he's what you call Italiani Jew. He comes quintessential Italiani Jew. And I've said this many times. This is not the first time I'm speaking about Jews in Italy, especially in the golden age when the Jews were living in Italy and doing something. More or less, there were three types of Jews there. Ashkenaz, Sephard, and Italian. The Ashkenaz were the Jews who moved there from Ashkenaz, obviously. Spoke Yiddish for hundreds of years. Yiddish Italian. Can you imagine what that's like? A Yiddish Italian? Uh, Venice, Padua, Northern Italy, and so forth. The Sephardic Jews obviously came after 1492. The Sephardic Jews ended up coming in two types, A and B. One was the Sephardim to Orim, who that's one type, and the other one was the Moranos, the, the escapees from the Inquisition. In addition to that, you also had Sephardim to Orim who moved to Turkey and then eventually moved from there to Italy. This is a complex reality. Venice, where he lived, was the main center where all these Jews interacted because they all had lived in a ghetto, which is a small area. I don't know how many of you have ever been in, 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 in visited Venice and seen the ghetto. I, I bet you some of the people listening to me have if you ever go on a trip. I did a trip there once. It's not a big area. And packed in there was your Ashkenaz Jew, your Sephardi Jew, your Italian Jew, and so on and so forth. Um... The Ashkenaz, each one had their own characteristics. And our hero comes from a family of... Uh, see, his life didn't work out the way he wanted, so I'm trying to figure out how to explain this to somebody. Our hero comes from a family in which he should have gone in a certain direction. He didn't go exactly that direction. And this direction would be combining the best of Torah Mata, best of term Derkites, however you want to put it, Torah Haskalah. The best. We're talking about the 1500s. So these would be people, and this was his family background, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and all that. They were two-thirds businessmen, one-third Talmudic Chachamim. Does that make sense? They engaged in business, they made a living, they prospered to some degree. How does a Jew make a living in the 1500s in Italy? Very hard. The laws are pretty anti-Jewish, and mainly you have to go and set up what you call a small bank, which really means a... Um, a uh, what we call it, a pawn shop, um, maybe something a little fancier than that, and you and sometimes depending where you were in different places in Italy, you can engage in business. 
I don't know if I have to repeat this, there was no country called Italy, there was a bunch of different states, about a dozen different countries, separate countries were located in Italy, in the south was the kingdom of Naples, in the middle was the papal states, and north of that was about a dozen little states, Venice was a particular country, Republic of Venice, there was a duchy of Modena for a while, the duchy of Milan, I don't have to give you all that, now, if you're Jewish, you move from place to place, as business opportunities present themselves. But the 1500s, especially after the middle of the 1500s, was bad because the Renaissance had taken place already. Now what you call it is the reaction to that. Uh, the Renaissance was the rebirth of interest in secular studies, which took place around 1400 or so. I'm giving you rough years, obviously. Let's say, for example, 1400-1550, And that's when life was opening up a little bit. And that could possibly have a positive benefit on the Jews because the less super-duper schmooper Catholic you are, you might be a little more um, lenient towards the Jews. However, one of the things that happened with the Renaissance was the rise of the Protestant Reformation. I'm simplifying, but that's it. So they started to challenge the Catholic Church, whereupon the Catholic Church doubled down and wanted to close down the Renaissance to some degree or another or became very stark. And uh, the more stark the Catholic Church was, the worse it was for the Jews, for a whole bunch of reasons. I can't go into this in, in super detail because there's no time. I'm just telling you that our hero lived in late 1500s, early 1600s, a time when the Catholic Church was pretty tough on the Jews. Um, he's going to grow up and be a big time Chacham, even though the Catholic Church burns all the Gemaras. You see what I'm saying? It was a, it, it was a nutty time. There were Mishamun and running around like crazy, like a cancer. Like a cancer. So, our hero, born 1571, he says in his autobiography, that he's like the only big rabbi to write an autobiography, and it's a kiss and tell one. Now, there's nothing X-rated or anything like that. But by from standards, even G is, is kiss and tell. <coughs> and, uh, he, uh, listen, <laughs> I don't believe this. He said when he was two years old, he could only read the Torah. He like the Mozart, you know, when he was three years old, he was posketing childs or something like that. <laughs> he had quite a memory. But clearly he was a genius. Seriously. And um, his parents were good Italian Jews. They were successful business people. They had to move from place to place as vicissitude took them. When they would come to a town, they would try to secure permission from the authorities to set up some kind of, like I say, a small loans bank. The big loans were for the Goyim. That's where real money is. So your five and ten cents operations, you're trying to make a living that way, get permission to do a little bit of trading on the side. And by the standards of Italy, you know, they prospered. But, uh, you know, what happens, the, the trouble is there was no safety net. There was no Social Security, unemployment insurance, anything like that. So as long as your health is okay and as long as business is working, the money comes in. But you always have to keep your money employed. It's not like you invest things the way they do now. Uh, it's a different life. I'm just making this up. Let's say I'm using American standards. I'm just making this up. Let's say a guy had 100K. And uh, so he turned it into some profit. He immediately got to invest it in something new. You got to go into a new business. Then you immediately got to go into a new business. Hopefully you bring it up to 200, 300, 400K. You're not loaded at all. But you're okay. But if you make a mistake... You could lose half the money or all the money. And then, you know, like I said before, there's no unemployment insurance. It's not like now under Trump and Biden, you know, the government's giving out trillions. They don't give nothing. 
and you can starve and go to the, and get poor. That kind of happened to his family for a bunch of reasons, particularly when his father got older. Once you're physically older, it's not so easy to run a business. So in a perfect world, you have a father with, let's say, for example, three sons. Again, I'm making this up. And the father builds up a business. And by the time he hits 50, 60, especially in those days, didn't have the medicines we have nowadays. You're already schwach. It's not so easy to run the business. So you rely on your kids to help you. And for, uh, hopefully they'll move this, the, the business forward. What if the kids are no good or they die or this or that and the other, they run away? A hundred things can happen in life. It's very hard to conduct your business physically. What if the goods get hurt somewhere? What do you got to go travel a you know, hundred miles away to get your, your stuff? Travel is hard in those days. We just have no conception. We who live sitting in front of the internet, how difficult life was in those days. Now, the background he came from was uh, a guy would be a businessman, but also learn. So like I like to put it, two-thirds, one-third. Two-thirds a businessman, one-third Talmud Chacham. That's like the ideal combination for these Italian Jews. From, um, they drew the time for learning. Um, but also, they're, 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 you know, but they're making their own living. Now, um, what kind of education is that? Very interesting. You have a kid, the kid grows up, you want to give him, if this is Italy in 1500s, you want to give him the uh, education of an Italian Jewish Talmud Chacham slash gentleman. How's that work? Um, tutors, right? I mean, one of the things he's going to learn is business, because how are you going to make a living? But in addition to that, you send him to learn for a while with this teacher and that teacher. Some teachers are Limuni Kodesh. And if it's Italy, they try to do things in an order. So first you learn Ivrit, then Chumash, then Tanakh, then Mishnayis, then Gemara, you know, that sort of way, depending on the kid. Um, in addition to that, you have someone teach him Italian and math and reading and writing and things like that to some degree. In addition to that, Haskalah. You'll teach him how to Ivrit, uh, Dikduk, how to write letters. That was a, a, a big skill in those days. I mean, it still is. Uh, what we call today communication skills. Um, poetry, possibly. This is, in other words, I say again, it's Torah Vaskala. Dikr is the learning, and the highest level is someone who's good in Gemara. But the other things is also important. Uh, few people will become Rabbanin. Most will become members of this upper class, which is Torah Gdum That's what his supposed to be his destiny. The problem is, it didn't work out for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, he left an autobiography called Chai Yehuda, which has been translated into English. Uh, I think it's called the Autobiography of a, a Venetian Rabbi, something like that. His name Leona Modena, Leon, and then M O D E N A. He's not from Modena, so many make that mistake, but it's, it's like, like I know people in Baltimore whose last name is Hamburger or Bamberger or Frankfurt. They're not from Frankfurt. They live in Baltimore, but their family originally was. So his family originally was in Modena, but he, he's from Venice. And um, he gets this elite education, and he's very talented. And so he excels in the Italian stuff, in the Haskalah stuff, and in the Torah stuff. He excels in the Tanakh. He excels in the Gemara. He excels in the Halacha. Interesting. Right? Now, if he would have had his brothers, he would have grown up, gotten married, 
gone into business like his father and be one of these guys that, you know, would be a successful businessman and put bread on the table. And you know something? He could also write a poem. He could even write a peerish on parts of the Shulchan Aruch. I mean, he was that good. You see? Or something like that. Torah literature. The trouble is, the business part didn't work out. He had a lot of bad mazel personally in life. The father's business collapsed. His business didn't take off. And he also had a gambling problem. And he writes about this. Today, Italy in the 1500s, 1600s, was notorious for gambling addictions. The Catholic Church went after it. The authorities went after it. It was an addiction. Today, in the firm world, we have a gambling addiction. You understand? It's not something talked about, oh, long ago. Today, what's the big problem in America, if you really want to know? Ask the Amudim, these guys. You got your porn, you got your uh, booze, you got gambling. Maybe there's some other addictions, I don't know. But those are the ones they always talk about. You know, especially this online business. See, he had a gambling addiction, so that's a deadly combination, my friends. Not to have a very successful business and then try to, you know, be a gambler when you can lose your thing and get married and have children and lose all your money. That happened to him a number of times. He, he complains about it. In fact, when he was 13, he wrote a book against it. He knows it's bad, but like many people, uh, all those who have diet problems, you know it's bad, but it's, it's one thing to know it's bad. It's another thing to fix it. It's a terrible business to deal with. Uh, he also had an alchemy problem, you know, because uh, what's the right word? Get rich quick. When you have terrible Parnassi issues, which he had all of his life. Um, so this is not the typical Guttel story. He is a kind of a Guttel. He was a big person in learning. But, like I said, and if he never wrote about his autobiography, maybe he wouldn't even know about it. But he had this uh, Italian Renaissance self-image thing in which they're very interested in self. Uh, there are whole books about the discovery of the self by the Italian Renaissance. What was that guy in the 19th century? Whatever. And he's sort of like the Jewish analog of that. And uh, so I'm describing a very unusual story. And so the result is that um, he wrestled with Parnas issues. Because he wrestled with Parnas issues, and nevertheless, he's a from guy, like I said before, he learned successfully with this Rebbe. He learned successfully with that one. Uh, with some big names. He learned Gemara with this one. He learned Haskal with Shmuel Akavalti, you know, who wrote the Arugas Abosam. His Moel was the Ramami Pano, who he was close with. Um, he could discuss Kabbalah things, even though he wasn't crazy about Kabbalah. Just imagine somebody with a fantastic memory and a highly trained mind. Whatever he writes is very logical, very clear, very lucid. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to read them, except it's the old-fashioned Baroque style. And what do you, what happens when you get married? What do you do for a living? Now, by the way, he tells all. So he was engaged to this girl, Esther, and she was beautiful, and this and the other. And they were in love with each other, and then Esther died just before the wedding. Now, he says over there, um, he went to see her just before she died, and she said, you know, give me a kiss. We never, we're both from, we never, we engaged, we never touched each other. Before I go, I want to get a kiss. <laughs> Who writes like this? Now, this is not X-rated. <laughs> okay? By rabbinical literature, it's called X-rated. Um, and by the way, he says in another book he writes, he says, the Minigiz and the Gedolim in Eastern Europe, 
the frummies always uh, battle against this. What do you do for a couple during engagement? I mean, we have this problem today, right? You don't want to be too close. You don't want to be too far. Should they be together with each other, not together with each other? You know what I'm saying. It's like a truism. A long engagement is not a good idea, which I personally agree with. But, you know, circumstances are what they are. And um, he says that the min- the Jews in Italy, once they're engaged, like the boys and the girls hang around each other, the, 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 the two betrothed people, I'm talking about during engagement, not before the wedding. I'm talking before the wedding, not during engagement. They're, they're close with each other. They don't do anything like whatever. But uh, it's it's not like Beis Yaakov. Uh, it's interesting the way he writes about Italian jewelry. <clears throat> now, as a result of what I just described, he had to go into the... Uh, um, I'll throw one more piece in. He wanted to live in Venice. That's where he was born, although he was in a few other communities, but that's what it is. It's like if I say I want to live in Baltimore, or somebody says, I guess, I'm born in Muncie, I want to stay in Muncie. He had that mentality. As opposed to other Rabbanim who moved around from place to place, if he had done that, in my opinion, he would have had a more normal career and then maybe become a business somewhere and, and be a much more regular figure. Um, because he was a gong of a certain variety. Of a certain variety. But on the other hand, he had a lot of pizer cochas, as I say. He dissipated his talents in a hundred directions because of the vicissitudes of his life. So, uh, as a result, because he wanted to stay in town, so the problem was like this. What are you going to do for a living? Business, he wasn't good. He tried his business hand. It didn't work. And with the gambling, it makes it worse. He got married. He married the sister of the girl who died. Okay? They had like five, six kids. He had three boys. This is notorious. All of them turned out bad. One became a criminal and was killed by other Jewish criminals. You hear what I said? Other Jewish criminals. Him and the father were walking in the street, and the other Jewish criminals murdered the son. Just imagine that. Another kid ran off to South America. Another kid went off this. Yeah, yeah, he had troubles. His, his, his wife eventually, you know, went insane or something like. He had a terrible personal life. On the other hand, you got to make a living. It's the fifteen hundreds. There's no, there's no social security. You know, there's no unemployment insurance. What do you do? And so. Um, he was multi-talented, so he wanted to stay in Venice. So the only way he can make a living staying in Venice is by teaching kids, which he hated. But he's very good at it. Um, I'm talking about elementary. Teaching some adults, going into the Jewish book business, such as there was there was a certain printing press over there, very strictly under the control of the Catholic Church. He went into printing thing. He, um, because he was a very big Tom Chacham and an excellent, excellent writer, very fine feeling for language. He became a well-known Magia. So if you were a rabbi in his time, you want to get a book published, you send it to Venice, and you pay him to go over the manuscript. Because the guy writes his safer, it's full of mistakes. He had a very good reputation like that. But you see what I'm saying? What a bummer. I'd rather write my own safer. Um, why am I spending my time being Magia somebody? Well, i got to make a living. Um, and he got smicha, but there's like a guild. You can't be a, a practicing rabbi, especially in Basin, until you're like 35 or whatever. And he moved, moving here, here, here. By the time he got married, he moved back. He was 20, 21, 22. And so what happened was 
he became a darshan. Turned out he was a fantastic speaker. This is what he writes. We know this from other sources. He was a fantastic speaker. So he started giving speeches in Shul's on Shabbos. And uh, they paid him. And uh, he's just very talented. Matter of fact, he says he gave his first rushes like when he was a little kid. And he had the, I mean, obviously he has the knack for it. Um, his style very much is to take seams and weave them together, you know. Like, if this was um, for Passover, I bet he would say something like this. Pesach Matzamora equals Avram Yitzhak Yaakov equals Torah Avodah Gmil Sassar. Then you tie it all together. Three, three, three. But I haven't done justice to it, but be very good. And because he was also excellent in Italian, which not all the Jews were, most of the Italian Jews spoke a Shvach Italian. He spoke mostly Yiddish or Italian dialect because he had excellent Italian. So he could... So one of the things he did was... Um, I'm trying to think how to put this. Make it his business to become a Bucky in Christianity so that he could, number one, deal with any kind of missionary, and number two, here's here's a better way. To try to put the best possible Kiddush Hashem uh, spin on Judaism for the Catholic Geisha public. That's one of his great contributions. He says, ever since he was a kid, he was reading New Testament and all these sorts of things, to know Da'amal Hashiv. And he did. Italy was a tough place. The Catholic Church was nuts at that time. In many places, he launched severe persecution campaigns, especially in his time, 1570, 1550s. Like I said before, this is when they burned people, burned all the Gemaras. Imagine, I don't know how he did it. He turned out to be a big Talmud Chacham, but he lived in Italy where you're not allowed to have a Gemara. Now, obviously, must have some way to get around that for individuals, maybe, or something. It's never been clear to me. But, you know, usually, like in Yeshivas, he had to learn to riff. You understand? One of the things he publishes is like a parallel version of Eden Yaakov, because the Catholic Church would not let you publish Eden Yaakov. He had to do something else called Eden Yisrael. They left out stuff, and he added to it, it was a crazy world. Okay? It was a crazy world. And so, one of the things he did was become a buck in Christianity, which was absolutely necessary. Now, the Jewish community does know Christianity, but you have to have an expert or two, right, who can handle these sorts of things. Today we would call it anti-missionary work. But in America, it's a free country. Italy was not a free country. You can never criticize... You know, I mean, you had to walk very, very carefully. And, um, therefore, when he would give his drushes in Shul and Shabbos, especially when he gave an Italian Shul, so it would be totally Italian, so Goyim would come. That's pretty good. I'm a Catholic priest, a nobleman. He got a reputation being that good of a speaker. I want you to hear what I just said. You don't have this in America. That somebody's an Orthodox rabbi, a from guy, and his sermons on Saturday morning on the Jewish Sabbath are so popular that Goyim will come, especially ministers and, and mayors and stuff like that. That's a Madrega. Okay? I mean, I, I offhand, I don't think I know anybody like that. 
I'm thinking as I'm talking, uh, name doesn't come to me. Okay? So, uh, that was a big Kiddush Hashem. Imagine you're an Italian Jew, living under terrible persecution. you got to live in all this Christian stuff all the time, and all this missionary business. But your rabbi, or at least your preacher, is so good that when he speaks once a month in your shul, because he spoke in different shuls, when he speaks once a month in your shul, Goyim show up. Now imagine how everybody sits up when these non-Jews, because they rule the country. And especially, I mean, shells are far, as they say. I've been in some of these shows in Italy. They were small. It's like a shtibble in Venice. So imagine, this is interesting. Here we have a, a minion with so and so many people. And, uh, you know, say, I'm just making it up, 30 people, 40 people in shops. And, you know, usually, you know, Jews are, they talk in the back of the show, and so on and so forth. All of a sudden, this guy comes after davening, or in the middle of davening, wherever. He's going to give a, a dry tone, a, a speech on the Parsha of the Week. Parsha Week, Eglazov, Mishkan, whatever. Right? It's going to be in Italian with no Hebrew words. Because God's not going to come if it's in Hebrew, you know, and he can't throw in any Yiddishisms, Yeshivaisms, Aramaic words, stuff like this. It's going to be pure English, pure Italian. It's Jewish. His speeches are very from. You know, they're very well constructed. And watch this. A Catholic priest walks, <laughs> walks in the show. Two or three. Or a policeman. Or, uh, you know, somebody from the city council. Or from the government. Or maybe a duke from somewhere. What kind of <laughs> All of a sudden the Jews are on their best behavior. <laughs> no no talking. Decorum. You know what I mean. That's Madriga. Now, for some reason, he didn't publish all these. Um, at one point in his life, because he's always hard up for money, and he was giving these drushes as for pay. Get it? For pay. That's what I'm trying to say. He's a brilliant guy. He had to be Mephazer Kochos, because he's in a Parnassa. If the Jewish community would have done right, they would have given him a full-time salary, and just do your thing, and they would have benefited because of the case Hashem would have made, but they didn't see it that way. And so here's a guy, that's going to typical Saturday, Mm. first to this show, and then another show, and then another show. They're all close to each other. It's the ghetto. And, you know, he'll speak at this show at 11. He'll speak at that show at 11.40. He'll speak at the next show at 12.40 or early in the morning, whatever it is. And I don't know where the guy can pick him up. And plus the Jews. Incredibly talented. At one point, he was really hard for money. And so in six weeks, he whipped up a bunch of drushes and published them. That's the only collection we have of his rushes. It's called Midbar Yehuda, or really Medaber Yehuda. He likes these plays on words. Memdal Beis Reish could be Midbar Yehuda or Medaber Yehuda. After all, there is a desert of Judah in the land of Israel, south of Jerusalem. On the other hand, he's Medaber Yehuda. His name was Yehuda Aryeh. So, you get the part. Now, many, many years ago, uh, how should I put this? I mentioned, I think, the Akedah last week, the Akedah Yitzhak. And I first came across him, as I told you, in this book called Studies in Jewish Preaching, which um, was a reform rabbi who, uh, Batan, who did studies, because he taught homiletics, of some of the great preachers, like 
uh, he doesn't have Yudari Mudina. He has uh, a Zarya Figo that Katie Seed sucked him on. And I'll meet him, Abishud, some people like that. They didn't have our hero. But then, this is long, long, decades ago. I was once in the Hebrew College, which used to be like my personal library. And in some old reformed thing, there was an article about the sermons of Leon and Monina, which in about 1950, the guy named Rifkin, who actually was from a from family in Baltimore, and then he left the deck and became a professor or something or other by the reform. There's a very nice study of the sermons. He actually read the book of uh, our hero, of Yudari Madana, in very simple English. It's, it's very, very good. Um, now I look today, it's online. The Sermons of Leon de Madana by Ellis Rifkin. It's online. So if you're interested in, and you know the patients read through the Hebrew, which was published long ago, you get an idea of what a tremendous darshan he was. Uh, to my shock, a number of years ago, to my utter shock, I was once in a bookstore about 20 years ago, and um, I saw something that blew me away. It was here in Israel, I can't remember. And they published it, they published the Madabra Yehuda with the kudos. <laughs> and I said, What the heck? Where would that be? With 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 the Maftei Hashas and everything. The same blue cover people that put out the drushas around and all the rest of it. I was like blown away. And obviously he had some secret fan club Yushlan because it put that in May Sharm. How did he hear of Yehuda Ayyamadina? The strange person in May Sharm. Uh, it's a beautiful edition. And it's around. I think I have seen it once in a while, Blue Moon, in farm stores, whatever's left over. So if you're interested in anything I'm saying at all today, you'll know, look around and ask if they have the Madabra Yuda drushas. And you see the classic example from old school, but it's very Baroque. Very Baroque. Which means he's got a, it fits a, it has to fit in a straight jacket of a pattern. You start, they're wonderful, but they're very dense. You start with a Pusik, and then with a uh, something from Chazal, and then there's a first part and a second part, and then a conclusion. But always like that. And that was, you know, very much the Catholic style. So you had to compete, you know, and that was this, the fashion. Um, here's the thing. No one's ever heard of this. He had no mazel. I think of this person, you could write on him, no mazel. Uh, his student was Azaria Figo, who I spoke about before, who's been elitim, has taken off, has been reprinted a million times, and is super famous. But the Madabi Huda not, even though each one's good in some way. He's really very good. I myself once had the experience of saying over one of his forts uh, in Venice, I think I mentioned it here, and the show was like taken away with it. It was about Sukkot. And he said, Rachman, Yakumana Sukkot is about Nephalus. Why is it Nephalus? Why not Shinafla? And he said, Nephalus, he describes the Jewish the Jewish people as a Sukkot without walls, we in Gullus. It's very eloquent. And the guy, we're always waiting since we have no walls holding up the Sukkot, that the Schach should fall. But the Sukkot is always Nephalus, but never Nephla. The Sukkot is always in a mock that it looks like it's going to fall. Never falls because God takes care of us. Mm, something like that.
They're very eloquent. Anyways, talking about the ghetto. All I can tell you is, he was quite a guy. But he had 4,000 rushes besides this that never got published, he said. Um, now, if he was just a darshaner, that's also interesting. We have great rabbis that come down Jewish history as darshanim. However, he was a Talmud And eventually, I think he got, if I have this right, so once he settled in Venice, in addition to having to teach kids, because you had to get paid by the parents, you know, to, to make up Parnasso, he had older students. There was a yeshiva of a certain type in Venice, meaning it wasn't a yeshiva like in Padua, which is more like you would imagine yeshiva, but it's something like yeshiva. And he would be, maybe a base manager might be the word, and then there was a private yeshiva that a guy ran, and he became like the Rosh Yeshiva there. But it's Venice. So it's not like the Rosh Yeshiva you'd imagine. Oh, it's a super chasha position, all the rest of it. He gave the Yeshiva and he got paid for it. <laughs> like that. His students, I think the Beresheva was a student of his, and Zarya Figa was a student of his, uh, Rashmal Mortera was a, He had famous Talmud and became big Talmud Chacham after him. So he was a Gansa finding Talmud Chacham. And eventually, I think he was a secretary to Bezin, eventually he became a member to Bezin, and eventually, he lived all of his life over there. He just moved slowly up the ladder. Eventually, he became the Av Basin of Venice, which is Chashub. But he's not like the typical guy, the Rav of Venice. You imagine a certain style. So, Devar Shmuel was a student of his. You know, Chashub guy with a long beard, and everybody gives him covered, all the rest of it. Nechtiketog, he had to struggle always for a living. And the Basin of Venice, in his time, always had a lot of fights with the Balabatim. They tried to take away their powers. There was always a lot of fights back and forth. It's too long to go into. It wasn't that much fun to be on the base of Venice. On the other hand, it's a Chashua position. That means that you have a basin that's a joint basin for the Sephardi community, which are two, for the Italian and for the Ashkenaz community. And so they had distinguished Halmi Chacham over there. These guys did the Gitin, they did the Takonis, they did the Erev, you know, the Chalitza, the whole business. And he himself was asked all kinds of shilas. Again, no mazel. He published. He, he wrote up a bunch of shilas and tshuvas. He kept them getting sabiyad. He never published them, and they only came out in the nineteen fifties. Uh, so he he got no credit. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's like Rodney Dangerfield. You know, got no respect because uh, they're not bad. They're not super long. You see. I, I can tell what happened. You know, he, he didn't have a lot of time. Uh, he writes very, very well. Very, very to the point. No, uh, you know, ring around the rosy. Gets right to the point. And um, very clear-minded. And um, here's the thing. He represents, to my mind, what we would call centrist orthodoxy. Because he's Italian Jew. He's not on the right, not on the left. He's a from guy. But he represents a community that's just trying to be from. <laughs> um, they're not anti limunichol They just don't really become unfrom. Okay? The big problem is the Christians. Uh, a lot of times they had these vikuchim. They had to respond to the Inquisition. There was an Inquisition in Venice, but not nothing of the sort like you had in Spain, of a very different type. There was a Catholic church over there. They had to deal with them. 
A guy like him had to become adept and perfect in doing the following. Managing relations with the guy. You can't walk all over them because then they'll get angry and do anti-Semitic things to you. You can't let them walk all over you. Um, one of the things the time when she lived was there was a lot of anti-Jewish writings out there by former Mishumarim, by Mishumarim. It's a whole literature of this. And Christians who buddied up to the Mishumarim then wrote books like Bookstore, Johan Bookstore. Another is telling you, I'll t- I'm a guy, I'm going to tell you the rest of the guy how bad the Jews are. They have all these retarded customs and practices. You think they follow the Bible. It's all Talmud. It's all made up. It's terrible. You end up reading it and think the Jews are a dreck. That was the purpose. A whole long, I mean, it's like 20, 30 books like that. And that's what the average European read to know what's going on in Judaism. Now, um, and the Jewish religion is crazy. The main people could defend Judaism were the ex-Goyim. It's ironic. The Shemonim were the ones who went after the Jewish religion. The Moranas who came back to Judaism, which they were a bunch, they're the ones that defended Judaism. So, um, it's very famous. There was a guy, Montalto, Elio Montalto, who's a friend of our hero, and uh, he was a big doctor in Portugal. Then he was secretly Jewish. He ran away to Italy. A Catholic priest showed up and said, I can disprove the Jewish religion based on Isaiah 53, you know, that famous Christian proof text. They wanted our hero, Leona Modena, to participate in the debate. He said, I can't do this. If I attack Christianity, it's going to, you know, I'll get in trouble. But this guy, Montalto, said, I don't, I, I, I'm, afra- I'm not afraid. And he busted the guy so bad that the Catholic priest in the middle of the debate said, I guess, uh, somebody's calling me to get the last rites of the church. I got to leave. <laughs> you know, he had to leave in the middle of the debate. So um, it's a funny time to live. So what am I talking about? Here's a guy that spends part of his day giving shiurim and gemara and shiurim and halacha. He spends another part of the day teaching kids alf base. He spends part of his time being magia books of others and printing and things like that. He also, if somebody dies, the family would give him some money to write us a, a nice nusach for the for the for the tombstone. Might be some rich guy whose daughter's getting married. Maybe he'll commission a poem. Might need somebody who wants uh, uh, who is willing to pay to give some lessons in Italian. Might be somebody who's willing. You're going to laugh at what I'm going to say. Who who'll give you uh, some finishing school courses like dancing, which was very important in those days. I know it sounds crazy to us. It's, it's, it's the uh, culture renaissance Italy. There's no rabbi right shows and shoes that talk dancing. No, there is one now. <laughs> See what I'm saying? He's such an unusual character. Uh, so coming from this background, he's going to have a... Uh, let me put it this way. He's going to have... Um, how should I put it? A very moderate and middle-of-the-road attitude in his Pesach And that's why he's associated with many liberal rulings. Uh, one that comes to mind is the one where he says, you don't have to wear a yarmulke. Because the Italian Jews didn't wear yarmulkes. Now, he writes in another book. We're not crazy about it. We'd rather go with the head covered, but the guy uh, are offended, you know, uh, because we have the reverse of them. You know, if a lady walks in, play company, you take your hat off. 
in Jewish company, you put your head on. And it caused too much trouble. And so we Italian Jews are done with it. We don't wear a yarmulke. I mean, sure they do. Um, he has a defense of that. By the way, he I think if I remember correctly, he quotes the Marshal, who was a contemporary of his, who also gave the hatcher for no yarmulke. Um, in Poland, in a completely different context. I remember he gave a Hector to play ball on Shabbos. Um, being Italian, he very much mm, into music. He has a bunch of shadows and things like this in the following. He wanted to improve the quality of davening. But he's Italian, especially in the golden age of Italian music. He's in favor of choirs. This is when they started to have choirs. I mean choirs, fancy schmancy choirs. Not the old-fashioned Jewish thing, you know, where you have one, the chazim was a helper or something like that. Moms have a choir with, um, you know, all the complexities that go along with it. And he was criticized. He was in Ferrara when this happened. He says, it's not a Jewish thing. It's a Gaisha thing. Anyway, now I have to have any music altogether. He has a famous tshuva. Well, he says, who says you're not allowed to have music altogether? You know, you can't have shira, but, you know, but Mishtayayan. He goes through that Gemara and gets it, you know. He says, what, it's a mitzvah to, to have a bad davening? <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and things of this nature. Uh, what else does he have? All kind of unusual things. It's like a big mako. But not, I'll say it again, he's a very firm guy. Uh, he wanted to improve the, the quality of davening. Now, he doesn't have an organ. There's nothing there. The question was a choir. You understand? Nothing like later on in reform. It's a choir. Um, not for a whole davening, for Yigdalf, I don't know. Some people were so stick in the mud, they said, because you can't even have a singing for I don't know. <laughs> Imagine it. Now, when I say sing, I don't know. They had I don't know. I'm not sure that was they had. But what if somebody wants to have something fancy schmancy for I don't know? Like a choir choir, you know, with 10 voices and all that. What's wrong with that? And I remember repetition and davening. Yes, shouts on that. But he also has stuff on uh, on um, Gittin, Nida, uh, Yavamath, Yibam cases. It was a real rabbi. But nobody knows about this because it only got published like in the 1950s by a professor. <laughs> it's called Zikne Yehuda. Yeah, it's probably online. Shouts to Zikne Yehuda. Again, he had no no luck. Um, what else? He wrote uh, a book against... Now, he wrote a bunch of things he could never publish. He has an excellent book against Christianity. <laughs> he really does. Um, but he couldn't publish it. I think it's called Mugin Becherev. Um, you know who looked to him? The, the island that wanted a normal posik. The Moranos especially. He used to get a lot of shouts from the communities in Amsterdam and places like that. Because they said, we need to deal with a rabbi who, I'll use modern terminology, who's a big postic but also has a PhD. He did not have a PhD. He didn't go to regular, like I told you before, he didn't come from that group. He should have, in my opinion, but he didn't go to college, get a regular degree, become a physician or something like that. A guy like him could easily have done it. That's not the direction his life took him. Uh, I think that's one of the problems he had. He didn't go to normative route. But nevertheless... People like to write to him, Charles, because he's like, here you're going to get from a normal guy who understands what it's like there in the real world. I was told what the din is, not to be machmer, not to be mako. 
you know, just straight up. And uh, he used to get a lot of these type of questions. Now, um, he definitely understands how you have to deal with the Goyim. He was very sensitive to that, and a lot of these communities needed this kind of sensitivity. Um, it's just very interesting. I, mean, I could go on and on and on. I, I'm trying to restrain myself from talking for three hours. Uh, but you see, everything I'm saying, telling you today is not your typical ghetto. Even Not even a typical Italian ghetto. You know, he learned here, he got his name, even he got a PhD, then he MD, then he was a basin here, and then he wrote Charles and Chubas, and he died. He's not that type, you see? Um, and because he understood the game so well, and, and was so sensitive to this, so um, people, people really like to hear his opinion, his halakhic opinion. And he made it his business to... Um, B'shem Shamayim, to uh, befriend uh, as many possibly sympathetic Christians as possible to help the Jews. So, one of the things he did to make a living was he taught Italian to Goyim. Imagine that. Now, think about that. Here you are in Italy in the time of Shylock, and Shakespeare. That's exactly when he lived. And they think the Jews are all junk. But you meet this guy, he's a rabbi, Jewish scholar, He's very well-mannered. His Italian is perfect. He knows uh, secular stuff. He has what the equivalent of a college education and, and better. He's a nice guy, normal. And he's 100% Jewish. He doesn't hide the fact he's Jewish at all. You walk away thinking better than Jews like that. Diplomats and high officials met him and were impressed. And this led to one of the most interesting things about him, in my opinion, that I will share with you. He met an English... Mm, mm, something of a scholar diplomat and the English guy said I guess we don't have any Jews in England we hear about them Shakespeare and all that what's the real bottom line there are a lot of books out there about Jews but they're usually written by Christian anti-Semites that's what the guy said what do you have to say about the subject and he wrote him in Italian a book called Riti the Jewish rites the Jewish rituals in which he basically said like this I don't know what all these anti-Semites and bad guys say. I'll give it to you straight, what the Jewish religion consists of. That is to say, Jewish life and, and rituals. That's what the essence of Judaism is. Not going to go into the theology. See? Because that would be offensive to a guy. But I'll tell you how Jews live. And he wrote this wonderful book in Italian, which the guy eventually was published in... in oh, oh, this book, the, uh, the Rights of the Jews, R-I-T-E-S, be, took off in the next 200 years and they became the only book describing Judaism by a Jew. All the other books describing Judaism were by Goyim who didn't like Jews. Right? Put the best spell, spell on it. It was written for this English diplomat to present the, the King James I. By the time it was published it was, it was another king. And eventually got translated all the European languages. And here you have the only book that I know of by a Rav, I mean, a, a Talmud Chacham, explaining Judaism to the guy. I wish, if anybody's listening who's interested, if you want something to do, to do, this book should be translated in modern English. I'll tell you what I mean. It was published in the 1600s and 1700s in England, in the old-fashioned English, with the old-fashioned print and all the rest. It's online. Right? Leona Modena, Rights of the Jews. And um, 
It's fascinating because he's a middle of the road guy. He tells us what the Jews do. He never lies. He he doesn't say everything. He writes very diplomatically. And he says, listen, you want to get the anti-Semitic stuff, read Bookstore. You want to say what really is going on? I'll talk to you straight. And he takes you through, you know, so to speak, Jewish life. And he's, you see, he's reflecting on what most Jews do. Now, it's just very interesting. Bookstore for the anti-Semites, they would say, oh, the Jews have this crazy Kabbalistic custom and this superstitious thing over here. Not superstitious thing over there. And by the way, it's true. We have plenty of superstitions in Judaism that have crept in. Right? But what Leona Mananel always says is like this. There's Judaism. There's the Din. And then there, then there's uh, there's the Raisit or Abana Minog. And there's local stuff. The superstitions that have crept in Judaism are usually from the local stuff. That's why they vary from community to community. The Ashkenaz have their superstitions. The Sephardim have theirs. The Italians have theirs, and we picked this up from you, Goyim. <laughs> right? You know, Jews in Padua, where he lived not far away, went to a witch. He has a shawl about that. He said, Where we picked this up? It's from, from the Italians. The Jewish religion is against the witches. In Germany, they have this Mishigas. In Spain, I mean, in, in Egypt, they have Mishigas. This is what we put. The pure Judaism comes from the Gemara. We, uh, we don't have these things. And so I'm going to tell you basic Judaism. And I'm going to leave the local superstitions out. We have ours like you Christians have yours. And um, it's very well written. What can I tell you? I remember he says, just like you, it's the women that keep the men from. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I wrote this 500 years ago. Uh, and he's all kind of, uh, it, it, it's just a fascinating book. It could, it's easy. It's, I mean, if somebody had to be a little bit of a scholar, but it would be wonderful if um, if this book was translated into modern English, so to speak, the Riti Ebreiki, the Jewish rites. Um, and people could tell at that time that this is a real thing. Uh, even anti-Semites. Uh, it, it would take me too long to go into this, too scholarly, but after 100 years of publishing, it started to have an effect among enlightened Frenchmen and Englishmen and Dutchmen, and it helped change their attitude towards the Jews, and um, and to uh, eventually, much later, um, what should I say, have a more liberal attitude towards Jewish civil rights. There's a lot to talk about here. I remember he says, listen, mm, he says everybody still at that time kept the thing where you, where you leave part of the room, uh, you know, uh, unpainted for the Corbin. He said they practiced that. He says, you know, you're really not supposed to have pictures, but Jews have pictures now. So we do, right or wrong. Why do we uh, uh, land on interest? He doesn't say because it's okay to screw the guy in. Uh, because where he comes from, he says the, the Christians should not be idol worshippers. He says, listen, we, really we shouldn't, but we, you, you, you allow us no choice. The rabbis have to bend the law because there's no way for a Jew to make a living. The only thing you let us do over there is lend money and interest. You won't let us do a, live a normal life. He says, we have all kinds of laws. I remember our beds north and south. He says, there's a lot of things in the Gemara you know, there's a safer out there, what's it called? Shmir uh, Sagufa Nefesh. All these halachas or things in the Gemara that a lot of people just don't keep. You know, technically maybe they should. They don't end up in the Shulchanach. They do end up in the Shulchanach. And he says out there, he says, these are in the law books and nobody keeps them. I remember he says also, 
Nobody in Italy anymore does caparas. You know, it looks to uh, a Bodizari. There are those that say you should. Most of us don't do it. Yeah, um, I, it's 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 just a lot, a lot of information, right? And one thing he says is, you always talk about cheap Jews. You Christians know we give more tzedakah than you do, okay? Um, it's a very fascinating book. What what can I tell you? And if somebody wanted to read in the old English, they could read it. But uh, the art scroll won't publish it because it has a few things in there. A little bit. It might be a little, a tiny, tiny, tiny bit risque, but that's all. Um, but it, <coughs> if you, the reader, want to find out, what was it like to be a regular Orthodox Jew? Shomer Shabbos. You know, not Meshuggah from his Um Regular Jew practices. Because they didn't learn this from Chino. Chino, there was it before Mr. Boris. His before the Shulchan Aruch existed. This is what people learn from their home, you know? Especially the women. What was life really like? By the way, the women covered their hair in this thing. I remember he says that. He says, men in Italy go around uh, because of circumstances uncovered ahead. Uh, but uh, the women wear a, a, a shaito. They wear a peruke covered in natural hair. Even though we know today in the strictly halachic literature, there's whole big fights about whether it was considered carrying on Shabbos or not. These are halachic sensitivities that the average Balabas wasn't even aware of. I know this group. You know, I've seen people like this. Our parents, our grandparents, they didn't know Mission Brewer, you know what I'm saying? They, they, they picked up what they picked up in Europe, you know, at home, in the old country. He is like giving a real wonderful description of that. It's a, like I said, I think it's a really nice work of social history. Hold up a second here. Okay, where was I? Um, I have the switch here. Now, on the other hand, listen closely. In Lamaisa, in Psachaloha, on a daily basis, I think it was very lenient and so forth, which is the mark of the old, you know, general communities. But in Hashkafa, by that I mean, uh, uh, Basic from Hashkafa. Daddy was very stark. And I'll tell you what I mean. I said before, he had students and others, admirers, in the communities that were spring up at that time, which included a lot of Muranos. Uh, this is the time when um, Amsterdam turned into a Murano center, which called the Portuguese Jews. These Jews had run away from Spain and Portugal Inquisition, and then they re-entered Judaism, but a lot of them were turned off by the Jews than they saw. Especially, it's not what they imagined when they were back in Spain. And they were developed, among some of them, what I would call an anti-Gemara, anti-Toshavalpeh type attitude. Uh, in which you start to say like this, where's all this Gemara baloney come from? It's not in the Bible. There were a number of cases like this. He's in the time of Spinoza, although, as far as I know, he didn't have anything to do specifically with Spinoza. But he certainly had to do with the Uriel Acosta. It was a Spinoza-type guy, and his mother and others. So, on specific questions of Emuna and Hashkafa, they would also write to him because he's highly educated. He knows the Ram, he knows all that stuff. You know what I'm saying? Not only know Gemara and Shas and all that, which he did, but he also understood Machshava, um, you know, Gimel Ikrim, those kind of things. 
And uh, as I said before, this is part of the interesting study he made as a kid about Christianity. The teacher would be a theology. He was very sharp. Okay? And he's moderate but sharp. If somebody, like they wrote to him, oh, there's a rabbi, there's a doctor in, in, in um, Amsterdam who's explaining the, the, the Parsha of the Week, not like Rashi or something. He said, no, that's okay. <laughs> right? As long as he's not posking against the Gemara, get off the guy's back. But this other guy who said that the Gemara is made up, he said, oh, you have to excommunicate him. You see? And his mother, you have to bury not in Jewish cemetery. And um, there was a whole thing where a guy wrote a whole attack, Kol Sachal, against the whole Torah And he wrote a whole thing, Shagasari, against it. In the 19th century, the founders of Reform Judaism tried to look at him as a proto-Reform rabbi, which was a lie, and say he wrote both parts. But that's baloney. He was a stark guy on, on fundamental Hashkabah. I would call him a Rambam type guy, meaning Rambami type approach, not Kabbalistic at all. Now, he knew Kabbalah somewhat. Uh, after all, he was close to the Rambami Pano. But he lived at the time when, um, he, let's put it this way he's born the year that Rizal died, or a year before. Just give you an example. So when he's growing up, this one, the Kabbalists start moving from Israel to Italy, especially with Sarok. And they told all these stories about their reason and whatever. And these turned him off. He belonged to those... Uh, what's the right... He's not anti-Rizal, because that's not true. But... Um, how should I put it? It's very hard to explain. It's often misunderstood. He wrote a famous thing called Arinohen, which is Attack on Kabbalah. But I want to be very clear what I mean by that. Because it's often misunderstood. He believes that there's a Nister, a Nigla and Nister, that's obvious anybody learns Gemara. That's what he said. So did Rambam. Just cause somebody in 1590 is now publishing a Sefer and Kabbalah is telling you this is the Nister that God told the Moshe doesn't mean it's true. This is what bothered him. If I can use the word the arrogance of the Kabbalists drove him crazy. This is my impression. I read his stuff. When they say, you know, if you don't know the Kabbalah stuff, you don't know what's really happening in Judaism, all that, this drove him nuts. What's wrong with Nigla? If a guy knows Shas and Rambam and this, that, and the other, and that's how you live your life, you're a good Jew, you're going to heaven. Right? What are you implying, Dave? You don't know the Zohar and the other stuff, you're not going to heaven? Heck, who said that? Literally, who said that? You said it, you're a liar. Where'd you get this from? Anyway, if a guy writes a Sefer in Kabbalah, see, he lived before the Kisri Arizal came out. Okay? It wasn't published till the 1700s. In his time, rumors are mamish flying. And this turned him off to the entire Kabbalistic enterprise, by which I mean from the Zohar forward. He didn't like the fact that Ramak, who he respected, he respected, says whoever doesn't learn Kabbalah is garnished. Uh, doesn't understand he's from the you know, the kind of rhetoric which you see, if you don't understand the Kabbalistic interpretation of the Din and Pasha, you're like at the most elementary, elementary, dumb level. And that really bothered him. Okay? It bothered him. And people tell lies and things like this, you know, like the Rambam changed his mind last day of his life. He's, he's the type of guy that's very turned off by all this. Now, he wrote a whole treatise, he never published it. 
in which he said, I don't believe any of his stuff. This was known. And by the way, he had many friends and he had students in Kabbalah. Shal Mortera was a Talmud of his. And Shal Mortera wrote that book, uh, what do you call it? Shar Shamayim. And um, what was it called? He was friends with uh, was, uh, Moshe Zakuto. You know, he had people that he knew with and he corresponded with them. But and he, like I said before, his rabbi sort of was the Ramami Pana, was number on Makobo. But they didn't see eye to eye on this sort of thing. Now, um, it would be like somebody today saying like this I'm not getting involved in Kabbalah, I'm learning Gemara, Shulchanar, Rambam, that sort of business. But in his treatise that he wrote, but he never published it, he said, You know, how do you know the whole Kabbalah stuff is true? Meaning the things that they're publishing now, ever since the Zohar. How do you know? Just because somebody put it out there, how do you know? The Torah itself was given in front of 600,000. This stuff came out of nowhere. That really ticked off the Makabalim. And by the way, he says over there, listen, if it's true, it's true. You know? In other words, how do we answer a question like that? You say, listen, if all the Gedoli Yisrael said it, so we assume they know what they're talking about. But that's a different thing than saying we were there and we saw it with our own eyes. So it's very complicated. And it produced a famous counter-literature. The four famous books that came out in the next centuries, people trying to slug them up. Irgas is uh, Shomer Munim, and Adramchal is Chokor Mekobol, Vikor Chokor Mekobol, and then in the 19th century, for some reason, who was it? Uh, Radal, you know, Rabbi the Bichavar, the Radal, on the Toldos Kadmus Hazohar, and then Ritzik Isaac Chavar, I spoke about him once, the Mugger Mitzina, which I've done. You know, and they tear him to bits, basically saying you just don't understand what's happening. This would drive him crazy. How do you know I don't know what's happening? I just have to take your word for it. So he put himself against it. Now, I want to say again, he didn't uh, broadcast, although he didn't hide it. If you look at his Shalos and Shubas, he'll say, I don't approve of people introducing Kabbalistic subjects in, in, in a drasha. Public doesn't have to know this stuff. Get them all confused. The Christians definitely shouldn't tell them about this because they'll think we're nuts. You know, stick with the Rambam. Uh, you know, most of the people talk about don't know what they're talking about. Now, obviously, he would respect somebody like the Ramami Pano, you know, but there aren't too many of those running around. So it's like today, people come around, you know, the firm world has a lot of people make boasts and claims. How do you know it's true? That's the problem. This is very interesting in that way. Um, because he wrote a book against Kabbalah, they loved him in the 19th century. He became a hero of the Haskalah. Now, he was not a Moscow in the 19th century. He was a very firm guy. I'm serious, you know. Uh, to him, God was an ever-presence. Um, but he had all these funny aspects of it. I have a safer of his, a little one, a little book, called Le Varier, I picked up somewhere. It's one of the things he did to make some money, how to train your memory. <laughs> have you get memory tricks, you understand? You figure the tag misses. It's uh, who published it? Yemenites. Can you believe it? Because the Yemenites are into the memory stuff. Okay? Um, he has so many different facets. That's what I'm trying to say. So, this is what I call Pizer Kochos. In the end of the day, um, he was a hush of a person and he was respecting his time. But he's all considered a little bit of a weirdo. And he was a little bit of a weirdo, mainly because. You know, life turned out not the the way he planned it. As time went on, and by the time he's 40, 45 years old, he became the 
chief rabbi of, of Venice. But that just means the president of the basin. He didn't run the community. The Balabatim ran the community and told the rabbis what to do, and the rabbis fought back. But he was a chashua person. They wrote to him from all over the world. He wrote a ton of poems. There's his poems are published, but I, I don't think most of the people listening to this are into poetry. He's a very good poet, too. He wrote things on theology. He wrote on a wide variety of subjects. Nothing that he wrote hit the, the, the front page. That, that's, that's the tragedy of his life. He wrote Charles and Schubert, but it didn't get out there. He wrote the Drushes, it didn't make it to the front rank. You know, he wrote poems, it didn't make it to the front rank. He wrote a book against Christianity, couldn't publish it. It would have made it for him. That's a very good book. He wrote a thing uh, about the, 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 against the Kabbal, he wouldn't publish it for obvious reasons. So that didn't make it out there. He had to fritter away a lot of his time just uh, to write things for rich people because he had to make a part of it. Listen, he had a family, he had to, had to put bread on the table. Okay? And and in all that, in addition to all that, he had a lot of personal tragedy in his life. So we come across somebody who we, in, I won't call it quintessential Italian Jew because most of the Italian Jews don't have biographies like I just described. He wanted to live in Venice all of his life. He lived in Venice. In his time, it was a very, very interesting place to live. The Jews had it tough. The government of the Venetian Republic was tough on them. But in return, you got law and order. There wasn't uh, violence. He, he said that he had an uncle or somebody who was murdered by a guy who lured him into a yard uh, to do an alchemy. Uh, he, he promised him he'd turn the, the base metal into gold. And the uncle or the cousin, whoever it was, was dumb enough to believe it, and the guy killed him. When the police found out he was arrested, this guy, this guy should murder, and chopped in four parts. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Now, this is Venice. There's no, there's no crime over here. Even a Jew can't be killed. But in return, he had to be very um, careful to, to observe all the discriminatory laws against the Jews. When he published his book in the Ritchie, he was afraid he might get into trouble. He had to take it to the um, Inquisition, have them approve it. Uh, it took a long time. You know, he, he lived under difficult situations. And at the same time, it's a Dover Yudua that he was able to earn the respect of the Goyim. The people in his basin were just a very interesting group. He was the Av Basin. Rep. Simone, Rep. Simkulitsata was on there. What we would call today a very modern Orthodox type guy. The Dvar Shmuel was on there, who we would call a very Haredi type guy. The Rosario Figa was on there. He was a guy who was a BT, you might say, who switched from modern Orthodox to super Haredi. These were his these were his Dayanim. Um So it was just a very interesting era. Because he had people in new shots. But in his case, they also knew all the Limunichol. All of, them, all, of, all of contemporary culture. Uh, that's just very impressive. Um, but you need Mazel in life and for your fame. He got his fame mainly in the 19th century, not the way he wanted it. He got his fame because since he wrote an autobiography and he wrote these other books that are controversial, the historians got a hold of him, but they turned him into something that he wasn't. This is a W. Dua. Um... Therefore, he's had a funny uh, uh, image. The from I see, I see myself, the Haredi world for the last fifty years has been trying to reclaim him. If you because um, I remember reading years ago the intro to um, what was it? 
not as how you figure it's not the Binalitin, but the other one on Sefer Trumas, Geduli Truma. Looks like a lot halachic Sefer. And they say, oh, the way he's portrayed is not true. It's not true. He was a very from guy, and he's been maligned. And I see now that they published him in Madabi Huda, they say he's been maligned. So it's very interesting that the from world is trying to re- recapture him, as it were, and not incorrectly. Because he was a very from guy. But he was Italian. Um, it's Torah and Haskalah. Not the Haskalah like you think, but you know. Um, but whatever he did, he did to try to help Yiddishkeit. And I can't tell you in those days, when people lived under very tough governments, especially imagine, you know, I'll have a Gemara, you needed desperately people like this. And I would say more than that, the public in general needed somebody with two feet on the ground, so you'll get a real psaq, but the guy's normal, you understand? He understands the real world, he understands how to hold him and fold him, he knows when to be machmer, when to be mako, and, um, uh, but he, you know, he, it'll be Lashem Shemayim. He, uh, I know he had a grandson, somebody told me the other day, he had a grandson that he was very fond of, who survived Yitzhak Menelavim. I didn't read the grandson's autobiography, apparently that's been published also. But Venice was just an interesting place. I want to tell you something. I remember he writes, our hero writes, that the whole community was almost kicked out of Venice. Listen to this. The whole community was kicked out of Venice, because two schnooks, Two Italian Jews uh, cheated the government or something like that. They embezzled something. You know, they pull a... I'll, I'll use a, a, a contemporary analogy. Imagine if two guys in Lake or whatever pulled up some big scam against the government. I know it's never happened, of course, right? <laughs> right? What if they said, I guess we're going to throw the whole city out? The the community of Venice for a month was, was in danger of the whole place being expelled because of two bad yidden. You see? This, this is the world he lived in. And so, uh, you're always dancing on eggs. You're walking on a very tight rope um, to try to explain Judaism to the Jews, to those returning to Judaism, like the the, the Muranos, to the Christians, to the others. That's like a, a juggling act. And he was a very good juggler. On his tombstone, it says something like this. He is a very good poet. He says, This place... Is my Kenyanag of Karka. <laughs> right? I was coming to this Agav de Karka, meaning this is the Karka where I'm buried. And I believe he's buried in the cemetery in Venice. Uh, now, I didn't go when I w- took my trip there because I'm a coin. And I think the cemeteries were uh, out of town or whatever. But um, he's among the most famous Italian Jews. Um, I don't think I've done justice to this subject, but at least I've acquainted you with the most unusual person. Um, who definitely doesn't fit the guttle mold. And yet, in spite of what I just said, these Gedolim books now, now, like from the Debertine, are including among the Gedolim. So I think that's, to me, that's that's extremely interesting. They know about his Kabbalah stuff. They know about his uh, liberal socks and other things. But they know, you can see who he was. And he was a very, uh, he had a very nice character. And was a genuinely from person. And uh, and high minded, and and honest, and those are not qualities you run across all the time. Anyway, with that, I bid you a good day. Once again, I thank the Rect Hands for the sponsorship, and some Shavuot. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast. 
please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.